A couple of years ago, <clears throat> some friends of ours uh, gave a game to our kids called Obstacles. Which if, you, if you have young children, maybe you're familiar with it. It's one of these really creative games that's won a lot of awards. And it's a little bit like kind of a D&D, uh, Dungeons and Dragons games for the six and under set. So the premise is that you're trying to get back home to your cottage or your castle or where you, wherever you imagine your home might be. And along the way, you encounter various obstacles on your path that you need to get by to continue. So first you deal out the obstacle cards, which may be things like a herd of sheep blocking your path, or a ravine where the bridge has collapsed, or a 20-foot tall green ogre that's standing over the road, things like that. And then you deal out the tool cards, which are the various resources that you have at your disposal to try to get around the various obstacles in your path. And these may be things like a teddy bear, or a trumpet, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a trampoline, a propeller hat, plate of cookies, a stopwatch. These are some of the things that are in the, the tools deck. And then the kids have to imagine proceeding along their path, coming up against the various obstacles that they've been dealt along the way, and to use the tools that they've been dealt in some kind of creative way to get where they're going. So for example, we might come up with a plan to separate the peanut butter and jelly sandwich into two sides and smear them together so they're all sticky and gooey. And then we jump on the trampoline over and over again until we're 20 feet high and we can smack one side of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich into each of the ogre's eyes. And then we can run under his feet, <laughs> run through his legs, things like that. So obviously for the, the target audience for this game, logic is not a key factor in the game. But really it's about creativity and courage and the understanding that um, there's a way around obstacles, there's a way around setbacks, that the things that block our path are not deal breakers, they're just challenges. And that with a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich you can go far. <laughs> And obviously this kind of attitude is helpful in every aspect of our lives, especially once we get to be grown-ups and we have to confront obstacles that are a little trickier than just your standard run-of-the-mill 20-foot tall green ogre. As we all know, anything that's worth doing is going to involve challenges. It's going to involve difficulties. It's going to involve obstacles that have to be overcome. And this is no less true about being here on retreat than with anything else in our lives. It would be um, unrealistic to expect this particular activity to be any different than anything else that's worth doing that we attempt. So if you are feeling a bit miserable at this point in the retreat, or even a lot miserable at this point in the retreat, you can be uh, rest assured that this is actually exactly as it should be. At, the, at this point in the retreat. This is par for the course, normal operating procedure. These first few days of a mindfulness retreat are inf infamous for being predictably unpleasant and uncomfortable in one way or another as we go through the settling in process of adjusting to being here and doing this very unusual activity. 
in particular, there tends to be this uncomfortable period during which we haven't really settled in yet. The mind and the body haven't really acclimated and gotten comfortable with the routine and the schedule and the effort that we're making. So they complain. The body complains with lots of aches and pains. The mind complains with lots of nagging thoughts, wandering mind. We may feel at times like we're being beset by all sorts of unpleasant thoughts and feelings that we can't control. So that's going on. And, but then at the same time, along with this, the strength and the continuity of our mindfulness actually has increased quite a bit during just these couple of days that we've been here so far. So that we're really aware, <laughs> we're keenly aware of just how uncomfortable we are. We're especially mindful of it. In ordinary life, we go through the day, we go through our days distracting ourselves from discomfort as much as possible. We just do it automatically without even really thinking about it all the time. But here, after a day or two of mindfulness practice, with very little to distract us, there's nowhere to hide. (laughs) There's nowhere to hide from the discomfort. And so we really feel it much more keenly than we usually do. Annie and I in the past have taught some weekend retreats together and we sometimes joke that these are the most difficult retreats to actually sit, ironically, this is the shorter ones, because the whole retreat is just the settling in period. <laughs> Can you imagine if you had to end your retreat tonight, <laughs> what that would be like? Um, it really requires a lot of fortitude to just come for a weekend and being, be willing to, to slog through the difficulties without getting over the hump to the sweet spot, which is possible in a week-long retreat. So we can be really grateful that we have this much time, that we have a whole week, and that we can be confident that the, um, the dynamic of the retreat will continue to evolve, and we may get past these most difficult days at the beginning. And it's very helpful as we do this to keep in mind that these, these difficulties and these challenges are just temporary obstacles, or hindrances, as we often call them in the Dharma teachings. And we use that word because they hinder our ability to be mindful. They make it more difficult to pay attention to what's happening in the moment. But that doesn't mean that they're roadblocks. It doesn't mean that we can't be mindful when we're present, just that we have to be more creative. We have to be courageous. These challenges may hinder us for a while. They may throw us for a loop for a while. We may feel at times like, okay, this thing that's come up, there's there's just no way I can be with this one. (laughs) You know, this is really just too much. But in fact, with the right tools, with the right cards in our deck, there's really nothing that can't be overcome so that we can continue to move along the path, move along our path as it's unfolding and move on to the next obstacle that needs to be overcome. The first obstacles that we tend to encounter when we start a period of retreat are what we might call energetic imbalances. And these could be either um, imbalances in our physical energy or in our mental energy or in some combination of both, which is often the case. So at one end of the spectrum, we have the hindrance of low energy, uh, the most extreme and obvious form of which is sleepiness which uh, we've all probably experienced at some point by now, maybe even to the point of actually falling to sleep (laughs) as we sit or feeling like we're close. 
but it can also take the form of more subtle states, subtle states of low energy. So that feeling of being just kind of dreamy or spacing out, um, falling into kind of dreamy fantasies, or just even feeling really relaxed or really concentrated. So relaxed or so concentrated that we stop registering what's actually happening. We're just kind of coasting along, floating along on that nice feeling of calm and tranquility. And this may be rather pleasant at times. For some of us, this feeling of kind of the dreaminess and the softness in the body and the sleepiness, we like that, it can feel good. For others of us, it may be quite distressing, quite unpleasant. But either way, it's a state in which if we give ourselves over to it, we've, we're not really learning anything about what's going on. We've, we've checked out in a way and we're not really taking in information about what we're experiencing. And this hindrance of low energy uh, is usually translated as sloth and torpor. In uh, the traditional teachings, there's this description of it. It says, there arises listlessness, lassitude, lazy stretching of the body, drowsiness, and mental sluggishness. (laughs) So we can probably identify with that. In some of the, uh, the old teachings, the ancient teachings from this tradition, the mind is said to be like a naturally clear, tranquil pond in its, in its unhindered, its unchallenged state. And it's said that sloth and torpor is like a layer of algae that covers over the surface of the pond so that we really can't see anything that's within the pond. It pulls a, like a curtain over experience. And it, we have that feeling with sleepiness that it, it creates this kind of cocoon around us and we just really can't see anything within it or beyond it. At the other end of the energetic spectrum, we have the hindrance of of high energy, excessive energy, which is sometimes called restlessness and worry. And again, can also show up either in a physical form or in a mental form or in some combination, usually. So this might manifest as just not being able to sit still, the body wants to fidget, move around, Um, or not being able to really keep to the walking meditation, or constantly being called off into, oh, maybe I'll head over there, get my cup of tea, maybe I'll hit the bathroom, maybe I'll go back to my room. This inability to just stick with what we're doing. At times it may be this feeling of ants in the pants, this antsiness, like our skin's crawling, and we need to jump out of our skin. I remember getting this feeling um, fairly regularly, kind of in my first few retreats and being at times sitting in the hall, one of the places where you are, and thinking, you know, I just can't take another moment of this. I'm going to, any moment now, I'm going to get up and run screaming from the hall (laughs) because it's just so agitating and so unpleasant, which I never did. Or the restlessness can show up more in the mind and in the quality of the mind. Sometimes we talk about monkey mind, which is that mind that just is jumping around from thought to thought. Every thought that comes through the mind it grabs hold of and runs off with. So we might be getting sucked into worrying, planning, remembering, any kind of obsessive thought train that we just can't resist. Or it could just be the subtle feeling that the mind can't really settle. Maybe we're more or less mindful, but we feel like the mind just can't really settle and connect with the present moment's experience. This is the quality of restlessness. 
And it's said to be like a, a rough wind that makes ripples over the surface of the pond. So maybe we can see a little bit of what's going on in there, but really it's, it's broken up, it's choppy. We can't get a clear picture of what's going on. So because we tend to encounter these energetic imbalances early on in the, retreat, the retreat, this is a lot of why we've structured the retreat the way that we have. That's a lot of the rationale behind the schedule, the alternation of the sitting and the walking, which if we uh, stick to the schedule, and there's a real value in the early days of the retreat to kind of just doing it, <laughs> unless there's some really particular reason not to. If we stick to that, that rhythm of we're still and then we move, and then we're still and then we move, going back and forth, keeping our activities as simple as possible through the day, uh, not taking breaks from our mindfulness practice, then this really helps to even out the, the energy, both in the body and in the mind. We come to appreciate this more and more as we become more experienced in the practice. Another great support in evening out the energy in the body and in the mind is making a balanced effort. So it's very common uh, when we come on retreat that we become very enthusiastic, um, you know, we've got great plans for work, what we're going to accomplish here and we really hit it hard, you know. We, we really jump on every moment, try to get that breath, try to get that step, try to get that thought. And really we're making way too much effort, which tends to show up as um, kind of having bursts of energy and then feeling exhausted. Or starting off the day with a lot of energy, but then finding that we kind of wind down towards the end of the day. And that same quality of uh, the ability to just be present is not there. Our teacher Sayada Upandita would often uh, scold us not to be gecko yogis. If you've ever seen a gecko, these little lizards, that um, they sit on the wall. And they just sit there and they sit there and they sit there. You see them all the time if you practice in Asia, and as soon as, but as soon as something comes across their vision that might be food, and then they dart really fast, and they grab it, and make this big effort, this big surge of energy to get their food, and then they sit again, and sit again, and sit again. <laughs> and we can kind of get into this, this rhythm in our practice, which is actually quite counterproductive, of, their, of making a big kind of uh, push of energy, you know, really trying to give the practice our all, and then just feeling totally worn out and completely disconnecting and not being able to keep any thread of continuity of the mindfulness. And then at some point we feel like we can go on again and we make another big surge. But if we think about it, this is kind of like, you know, say we're, say we're um, trying to get somewhere in the car and we hit the gas pedal really hard and then we hit the brake pedal really hard and then we hit the gas pedal really hard and then we hit the brake pedal really hard. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> and it actually works exactly the same way with building our, our, our energy, the, the smoothness of energy. Um, you know, as our, our driving instructors told us when we were learning to drive, you want to make just that nice, gentle, smooth pressure on the accelerator. You know, not going by fits and starts, but just little by little, letting the car accelerate, building up speed. And then once we get to the cruising speed where we want to be, it's actually quite effortless to stay there. It just takes just a minimum of effort to, to keep cruising once the momentum's there. There's a very famous story from the suttas, which probably some of you have heard, the story of Sona. So in the time of the Buddha, there was a young man named Sona who was the son of a very wealthy businessman. 
and he was raised, it's said, in great ease, great luxury, um, and he had a great love of music and was very accomplished, so he devoted a lot of his time to his music, uh, his instruments, and he did hardly any physical work for himself. He was just waited on hand and foot all the time. He hardly even walked anywhere and said that he was carried in sedan chair pretty much everywhere he went so that his skin was very delicate and soft and it was even said that he did so little walking that he had hair on the soles of his feet. That's how delicate and pampered he was. And the rumor was so strong that even the king of the region where he lived, King Bimbasara, who's another big figure from the suttas, uh, called for him to to examine his feet and see the hair on the soles of his feet. But one day, Sona went to listen to a talk by the Buddha, carried in his sedan chair. Um, And the talk happened to be about the happiness that was experienced from uh, letting go of worldly desires, letting go of attachment. And Sona was very inspired by it and decided to become a monk. And he was taught sitting meditation and walking meditation, just as we do here, the same basic approach. And being an enthusiastic young man, he went at it with great gusto, spending many, many hours on walking meditation, which he was quite unaccustomed to, and his tender feet were just not prepared for. But he persevered and persevered until finally his soles were just a bloody mess, covered in blisters and sores, and he was in great pain, which, needless to say, was not a great uh, motivator, made motivator in his practice. He became quite disappointed and started speaking to his fellow monks about returning to lay life, giving up uh, the monkhood and the practice. And when the Buddha heard about this, he went to see Sona and said, I've heard you're not getting good results from your practice. If I explain the source of your difficulty, would you stay on a little bit longer and try again? And Sona perked up at this because he really was quite sincere in his aspiration. And he said he would. So the Buddha said to him, Tell me, Sona, when you used to play the lute, did you produce good music? Did you produce good music when the strings were well-tuned, neither too tight nor too loose? And Sona replied, Yes, I did. Then the Buddha asked, well, what happened when the strings were too tightly wound? And Sona replied, I could not produce any music. The sound was not good. How about when the strings were too slack? Then, too, I could not produce any music. The strings won't make any sound if they're too slack. So the Buddha said, just so, Sona, you have been training too hard in your meditation. Do it in a relaxed way, but without being slack, and you will experience a good result. So Sana took that to heart, took that teaching to heart, and practiced in a more balanced way, a more gentle way. And it's said that relatively soon he became fully enlightened, one of the arahants. So this is the quality of effort that we're going for, not too tight and not too loose. The Buddha famously said, um, when he was asked once by a deva, a celestial being that had come to visit him. How did you cross this flood, this river of suffering, to the other side of peace and tranquility? And the Buddha said, by not struggling and by not stopping. This is how I crossed the flood. When I struggled, I was swept away by the current. And when I stopped, I sunk in the waters. But by not struggling and by not stopping, I was able to reach the other shore. So this is the quality of effort that we're going for. 
not struggling, but not stopping. Just a very light, gentle effort from moment to moment. The next set of obstacles that we might encounter as we settle down into retreat, we could think of as the obstacles of reactivity, the reactivity of the mind to experience, which are usually called craving and aversion. And we speak about these a lot here. Really, they're two sides of the same coin. They're the reacting to experience, wanting, not wanting, which arises out of an inability to just rest with what is happening as it is. So craving, on the one hand, is the energy of wanting enjoyment, craving for enjoyment. So the present moment is unpleasant, maybe, or maybe just boring. So the mind goes searching. This is how we're all conditioned. We've all been trained throughout this lifetime, at least, uh, possibly other lifetimes, if we believe that uh, view of the world. But certainly for a long, long time, uh, we've been conditioned to seek pleasure when experience is unpleasant or unsatisfying in some way. So the mind starts casting around. Um, Maybe we dredge up a pleasant memory. Maybe we manufacture a pleasant fantasy. Maybe we try to manipulate our meditative experience so that it's more pleasant. Uh, Really cling to that breath to try to build the tranquility because we know that feels nice. It can manifest in lots of different ways. It often shows up as wandering mind, that mind that keeps gravitating towards thoughts or thought trains that in some way give us a little hit of pleasure because the the content of the thinking is pleasant. Craving is said to be like a dye that colors the water. So we can see what's in the pond, we can see what's in the pool, but everything is um, tinted. It's not showing its true color. And there's that tone in the mind when we're kind of in the grip of craving. Whatever it is that we're latching onto, whatever it is that we're fixating on, we don't see the full picture of it. We're just really focused on what's uh, appealing, what's gratifying about that fantasy or that memory or whatever it is that we're latched onto. Aversion, on the other hand, is the energy of ill will or irritation. And this is another way that the mind goes searching for something else when it's not satisfied with the present moment. This is one of the things about the mind that's just maddening, (laughs) is we're not satisfied with the present moment, it's unpleasant, it's boring, and where does the mind go? Goes back to rehash some unpleasant memory. (laughs) Manufactures some fantasy of everything horrible that might happen to us. It starts to gripe about conditions of the center, or fellow yogis, whatever it might be, or coworkers back home. There's, the, there's this, this irony that the mind would rather um, get drawn into this energy of aversion than just simply be with a moment that is unpleasant or neutral. And this too tends to show up as, as the mind wandering, thought trains coming through that we jump on that tell stories of aversion, tell stories of dissatisfaction, tell stories of annoyance and irritation, all these various forms of aversion. There's this kind of... Um, you know, odd fascination, that self-righteous satisfaction of, you know, rehashing these stories of negativity. So what we're wanting or not wanting, maybe something physical, maybe something mental, maybe a person, a place, an object, an experience, a sensation, could be anything. But whatever it is, it really takes over the mind. 
and preoccupies the mind and obsesses the mind. These are said to be the hindrances of obsession that keep us caught in thinking, caught in our obsessions, so that we lose sight of what's actually happening in the present moment. There's a very well-documented phenomena that tends to arise when we get to a place in the practice where we're really caught in the grip of craving or aversion that we call yogi mind. (laughs) And this is the, the place or the state of mind where little things start to become just a really big deal. You know, somebody that maybe we share our yogi job with um, set something down in the wrong place and we just can't stop thinking about it, you know. Or there's, there's the person that we've noticed walking around that is just really graceful in their movements. Uh, they just seem like they might be the perfect life partner for us <laughs> based on the way that they walk. They're just so graceful and we can't stop thinking about that. Um, there's a tendency for us to fall into uh, either what's called a vipassana romance where we, we latch on to the attractive uh, socks, or the attractive uh, sitting posture of one of our fellow yogis and kind of have this whole romance with them blossom while we're here within our own minds. Uh, or on the other side, there's a, a yogi that, you know, maybe their socks are the wrong socks. We don't like their socks or we don't like, you know, how they fill their bowl in the meal hall or something and just spend the whole retreat seething about, <laughs> you know, how this person is behaving. So to, to just to keep in mind that this happens, and this is a really great opportunity to really see that um, the power of obsession, you know, whether it's for, for craving or for aversion, whichever side of the coin it falls on, it's an incredibly powerful energy. And this may be the time when we find ourselves caught in one of these places, when we start to really appreciate the value of the precepts that we're keeping here, the container, the protection of the container of the retreat that we're all holding together. It's funny how we may come to the to the opening night of the retreat. We, you know, we talk about the precepts. We look at the sheet and read through it, and we think, "Ah, oh, what's the big deal?" You know, of course, I'm not going to hurt anybody, harm anybody, you know, mess with anybody's stuff or act out my sexual energy. And then we get a little ways into the retreat, <laughs> and we find ourselves, you know, at the board with the pen in hand, writing a helpful note. To, to that person here that could just use a little guidance, you know, and, and how they're behaving. Or we find ourselves kind of reaching under the bed for the suitcase where we put the cell phone <laughs> for a little bit of distraction, a little bit of entertainment. Um, which is why we make, one of the reasons, as Andy said, we make such a big deal about the phones, because you never know <laughs> until you get to this place what you're capable of. Um, and this is very humbling to see this and very instructive. This is so useful because, as I said, we spend our lives avoiding seeing this. We either act it out without thinking about it, um, or we just move on to the next thing we don't notice. So here, you know, it's not pretty, but it's, it's really important and really helpful to just see, okay, what will the mind get up to left to its own devices when we really look with honesty at what's in there. The last hindrance, uh, the one that doesn't have a partner, is often the sneakiest one, which is often called doubt. And this can be a very serious obstacle in practice because it can just really completely cut us off at the knees so that we don't get anywhere in our practice. 
And what we mean here by doubt is specifically the kind of doubt that interferes with our, our meditation, with pursuing our practice and our spiritual path. So it's not just any doubt. It's not doubt about like, well, is there sentient life in the universe? Or, you know, did I forget to set my auto-reply on my email? It's not that kind of doubt. It's the kind of doubt that really undermines our ability to, to really do this practice fully with a, a, a full commitment and a full intention. So things like about, could be really nitpicky things about just how should we be sitting, have I got the right posture, you know, how much time should I be devoting to the anchor, what anchor should I use, where should I be walking, kind of all those little nitpicky things about the practice. We can fritter away a lot of our time and energy trying to decide how to practice <laughs> so then we don't get the time to actually practice. Or it could be bigger kinds of doubts. You know, is this really the right place for me to be? You know, should I have come on this retreat? Is it really going to work for me? Can I do this? How is it going to work? Do those people sitting up there actually have any idea what they're talking about? So there can be really big doubts about what we're doing here. But when we talk about doubt as a hindrance, we're not talking about um, questioning what we're doing. You know, considering our practice, considering our path in life from a place of discernment and wisdom, which is something that we absolutely should do when we're not on retreat. <laughs> when we're on retreat, uh, the only way that we're going to answer those questions is by actually doing the practice, right? The only way that we'll actually find out, does it work for us? Is it effective? Do those people know what they're talking about? Is to give it our best try and to see what happens. For many of us, the only way that we know of handling life, of managing life, and everything that it throws at us is through our intellect, through our reasoning and our thinking. We think our way through problems. We solve problems with our intellect. We solve them rationally. Um, so we can come into retreat with this really being the, the mode of knowing that we trust, the mode of knowing that's familiar to us. And it can be unsettling. It can be frightening to be asked to really set that aside, even though it's just for a week, to set that aside and to try something radically different, try uh, to investigate our experience and to come into contact with our experience and know our experience in a completely different way that has nothing to do with the intellect. So it can be for some of us a real challenge to let that go and we get caught in the, the spinning mind of doubt. Doubt has this quality that it can never settle. So it's one thing if we have a doubt, maybe we ask a question of a teacher or in the hall, and we get an answer and we're satisfied enough that we can proceed. But when we're really in the grip of that, that doubting mind, one question leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And we can't arrive at a place where we feel secure enough and grounded enough that we can actually get on with the practice. And this can be really debilitating. The opposite of doubt is faith, which is tremendously important in the practice. And this is not blind faith, like, you know, we sit up here and say things and you have to just take our word for it. But faith that has enough confidence coming from our own heart, from, from the confidence that's brought us here, that we can at least give it a try and try it out and see for ourselves whether it's true or not. The quality of faith, the Buddha said, is like, it's like our Dharma hands. Like without our hands, we can't do anything. And the Buddha said that without at least some basic faith, that it's worthwhile to be, to be here and to be doing this practice and at least trying it out. Without that fundamental faith, we can never 
gather. We can never pick up any of the benefits that the practice has to offer. So it's important to question, and we encourage questioning. But ultimately, the answers have to come from within ourselves and from within our own experience. Those are the only answers that will ever truly satisfy us. Our teacher Upandito also has said that just in the the case of an ordinary school, a secular school, the teacher can stand at the board and solve algebra, algebra equations all day, and the students will never learn algebra. That at some point the student has to put their own chalk on the chalkboard and solve the equation for themselves. That's the only way that the knowledge becomes their own. And it's the same here in practice. We have to sit down, uh, go walk, look inside the heart, look inside the mind and the body, and find the truth for ourselves. Find the truth that's within us. So there's two basic approaches for overcoming the obstacles that the hindrances present to us on our path. And you hear us talk about both of these at at different times and in different ways. But basically it, it boils down to we can just be mindful. That's a card that we always have in our deck that we can play. Or we can bring in some kind of skillful means, what's sometimes called an antidote, although that's a little bit of a misleading term, but some kind of skillful means that will help support us in maintaining mindfulness, even in the face of some very challenging experience. The mindfulness card is kind of like the ace in the deck. It trumps everything else. Kind of, it's kind of like the trampoline in my kid's card game. Like if you have a trampoline, you can just jump over anything. <laughs> you know, it'll get you over anything. Um, and mindfulness is, is like that. So no, so no matter what is going on in the mind and the body, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how awful, as soon as we can just be aware of it, just in a, and we're talking not in a, in a deep, profound, penetrating way, but just simply knowing I'm sleepy, I'm restless, I'm caught in the grip of some obsessive thought pattern. As soon as we know that, the whole equation has changed of what's going on in our minds. We're no longer blindly acting out those conditioned tendencies of the body and the mind. We know what the game is. As soon as we see what's going on, everything changes. So we can really have confidence in that, have faith in that. It usually doesn't feel like enough. <laughs> you know, we say this over and over again. All you have to do is just be mindful of what's happening. And I think the reason that we have to say that over and over again is that that's not really a very satisfying instruction. You know, we want some magic pill. We want the experience to go away. We want it to change for the better, right? But really, all that we need to be doing in the moment is just playing that mindfulness card. Do we know what's happening? It's okay. And then on the other hand, there's also this very wide assortment of skillful means, uh, different ways of of approaching a particular state of mind, uh, working with it in some way, creating a different context for it or container for it that may just make it easier for us to hang in there and be more mindful in more moments while that particular obstacle is playing out. And part of the art and the skill of meditation is learning for ourselves how and when to bring those different skillful means in, or when to just be mindful. And for the most part, we learn this through trial and error. (laughs) There's a, um, a cartoon I saw years ago that I just loved, and I mention it all the time. 
um, it was one of those ones, I don't know if this one's still published, but where the guy's kind of climbing up the really steep mountain in the loincloth. Do you remember this one? It's called like BC or something. Um, so in the first frame, he's climbing up the mountain to the, to the peak. And then in the, then the next frame, he's meeting his guru who's sitting on the very peak of the mountain. And he asks, Master, what is the secret of happiness? And the, the master comes back with the response, good judgment. And uh, you can kind of see the, the seeker considering this for a moment. And then in the next frame, he says, Master, what is the secret of good judgment? And the master responds, bad judgment. <laughs> And this really tends to be how it goes, you know. It's just, as human beings, this just tends to be, you know, we need to learn a lot of the, the our lessons the hard way. So we try things, it doesn't work. We try it a different way, maybe it works a little bit better. Try something else. There's a lot of experimentation in this process. So just being curious, bringing in that attitude of investigation and uh, uh, invest and uh, checking things out for ourselves, being playful about it, being having a sense of humor about it is really, really helpful. Just not taking it all so seriously. And over time, gradually we learn when it may be productive to just stay with the difficult experience. Just simply bring in mindfulness, learn as much as we can about it, investigate it. And then we learn when there may be a point where, with a difficult state where it's just become too much for us. We can't stay in the present moment in a balanced way anymore. It's just too overwhelming. Or maybe we're on the brink of overwhelm and we know that we've reached our, kind of our limit of what we can take. So then we bring in some kind of skillful means to help keep the thread of our mindfulness just as, as much as we can until we reach a more balanced place. And over time, we learn more and more skillful means for dealing with the hindrances. So different ways of approaching them that help to deflate them, help to take the wind out of their, sail, their sails, and which of those are most helpful for us at different times. And we'll get more into these kind of specifics of working with uh, different hindrances uh, in the Q&A is a good time to bring up things you may be dealing with, or in the groups, we can get it more into specifics. I sometimes uh, think that it might be nice to, uh, or entertaining to make a Dharma version of my kids' obstacles games, you know? So you have the, the obstacle cards, you deal like sleepiness, restlessness, and obsessive craving, you know? <laughs> and then you could have your tools deck and you do that, like standing up, uh, opening your eyes, uh, you know, coming back to the breath, and you know, you have all your tools. So just one example of uh, some skillful means, just considering sleepiness, which is one that we struggle with a lot these early days. So our first line of, of approaching sleepiness might be to just try simple mindfulness. We start to feel that sinking in the body. We know that the mind is kind of drifting off. We feel like we're starting to go down that route towards sleep. And we see if we can get curious about it check out the body. Okay, how does this feel in the body? And we would actually scan through the body and see how does sleepiness feel in my face? How does sleepiness feel in my shoulders? How does it feel around the heart? And go through the body and really get a, a read on what is that quality of sleepiness in the body. 
or we might check out the quality of the thoughts. It, it can be really interesting to see, you know, sleepiness is not a black and white thing. So there's a whole uh, spectrum of states of mind between what we might call uh, full alertness or full consciousness on the one hand and complete sleep, you know, complete unconsciousness on the other hand. When we're in retreat like this, we might get a chance to see, oh, there's all these gradations in between. You know, there's this place where I'm kind of mindful, but my, start, start, my thoughts start to become like really nonsensical. <laughs> we might catch one of those kind of quasi-dreamlike thoughts. So that can be really interesting to watch. And just by bringing this quality of investigation and curiosity into the sleepiness, that arouses energy. So ironically, using sleepiness as what we're investigating in our meditation can combat the sleepiness also. Another thing to keep an eye out for as we do this is what we always talk about is the relationship of the mind to what's happening. So we're noticing the sleepiness and perhaps we notice judging thoughts start to come in the thought arises, oh gosh, I can't believe this is happening again. It's the end of the second day and I still just can't keep my eyes open. So then can we notice that? Can we become aware of that mind that is aversive, that is uncomfortable with sleepiness? Or perhaps the thought comes in, oh, you know, I've been working really hard. I'm just going to give myself over to it for this sitting. Let me just go with it. Ah." And we might notice that quality of of craving of the mind, of seeking the pleasure and the sleepy experience. So this also can become really interesting. Another way we might approach the sleepiness, and something that's really always helpful any time that there's a difficult state present, which is to really lower the bar (laughs) of our expectations for how the practice should look or ideas we might have about how the practice should look. So we might have this idea that, um, you know, we should be unremittingly, continuously mindful even when there's a lot of sleepiness or a lot of restlessness or a lot of obsessive thinking. This is just not realistic and we don't need to hold ourselves to that ideal. Uh, It's enough just to show up for as many moments as we can. So we grab a moment and then we're carried off by whatever it is. We wake back up, we grab another moment, then we're carried off again. You know, we may be gone most of the time, but in those moments when we wake back up, we recommit, we reconnect, see if we can notice just one moment of sleepiness, just one moment of restlessness before we're gone again. If we get to a point where we feel like we're just completely getting sucked under, you know, we can't really bring in the mindfulness in any of these ways around the experience of the sleepiness, then we might see if we can bring in some kind of skillful means to arouse a little energy. Not from a place of aversion, feeling like the the sleepiness is the enemy, we've got to banish it, we've got to vanquish it, we've got to get rid of it, but just with the intention that what we're here to do is to be as mindful as possible. So what can we do that will help us to realize that aspiration? The Buddha uh, famously recommended pulling our ears, pulling our (laughs) earlobes. So feel free to try this. Um, It's often quite effective. (laughs) Or rubbing the hands is another one he recommended. Um, In Burma, if you go to practice in the monasteries there, they actually have these wonderful eye drops that make your eyes really smart. This will really wake you up. (laughs) It's very effective. Um, We can try things like adjusting the posture, you know, bringing more uh, uprightness to the posture. Um, Pinching yourself can actually be helpful. Pinching your fingers, pinching your cheeks even. Um, We might reflect on something inspiring. So this is a a skillful means that might not necessarily occur to us because it's thinking, right? 
but this is actually a skillful use of thinking. So we might reflect on the previous night's Dharma talk or something that we heard in the groups or something that we've read in our favorite Dharma book. So not to you know, spend the whole sitting reflecting on that, but maybe taking a few minutes, just bringing it to mind, seeing if we can get that burst of inspiration, that burst of uplifting energy from it. And then when we feel like there's a little bit more energy there in the system, then returning to the mindfulness practice. So there are many different uh, skillful means like this, many, many things that we can bring in to help us to overcome our obstacles. And we don't ever need to feel like any obstacle is unsurmountable. There's always the trampoline. You know, it'll always pass. It always does. If nothing else, we really get to see this on retreat. You know, no matter what that big storm we were having yesterday or a couple days ago or on our last retreat was, it passes. It all passes. (laughs) So we get to see um, as we do more retreat, as we walk the path longer, that there's no need to push things away because they're going anyway. So the point's not to get rid of the hindrances, but really to just learn as much as possible about them. We don't need to feel like we have to immediately jump to some kind of skillful means when an obstacle presents itself. We don't have to immediately immediately move to something that we hope will dispel the obstacle. We can take that time to just hang out with it. But on the other hand, we don't feel, have to feel like we need to really just grit our teeth and teeth and brute force our way through something that's just really difficult and really painful. We can bring in skillful means to help to, to diffuse the, the tension and to help us ourselves to just be able to carry on. And learning what keeps us from being balanced and peaceful is a lot of what meditation is about. The, the truth of the matter is just that we learn what real peace and happiness are by first seeing in very painful, very excruciating detail what they are not through this process of elimination. Which is great because what keeps us from having a peaceful sitting meditation, a satisfying walking meditation, guess what? It's the same thing that keeps us from having a peaceful life, a satisfying relationship, all those types of things. It's the same stuff. Whatever it is out there that's our bugaboo, we bring it right here to the cushion. And we have a chance to see it here in a way that we don't in our ordinary lives. And we also have to remember with these hindrances that our power is limited. You know, so in my children's game, we can always find a solution. You know, we can always imagine our way to a solution. You know, there's nothing that you can't accomplish with a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But in our practice here, it may be that we try something, we make our best attempt, and it works like a dream. That's great. You know, whatever that problem we were having, whatever that obstacle was, it just, poof, it disappears. That's great when that happens. But there may be another time when we try everything we can possibly think of. <laughs> None of it has any effect whatsoever. Things might even get worse. Maybe one time something works great, and the next time it does that same thing doesn't work at all. So it's really important to cultivate patience as we go through the practice. And to remember that no matter how long we get lost, no no matter where we've been, no matter what the mind and the body have gotten up to, we can always start fresh. That's that moment of waking up and coming back and recommitting, reaffirming our intention to be with the present moment that's the magic moment. It doesn't matter how often or how long we're lost, there'll always be another moment of mindfulness that comes along. 
and then we can start again. So the mind is not stained or tarnished in any way by whatever it's been through, wherever it's been. And I'll just end uh, with a little story here. This is a story that was reported um, about Thomas Edison by a longtime associate of his named Walter Mallory, um, which has become quite a famous little anecdote. Um, So Mallory reported that Edison and his team had been working on developing a new type of battery, nickel-iron battery, which became very important. Um, They'd been working for more than five months, and Mallory came and paid a visit to Edison in his laboratory, and this is how he reported it. He said, I found him at a bench about three feet wide and 12 to 15 feet long, on which there were hundreds of little test cells that had been made up by his core of chemists and experimenters. He was seated at this bench testing, figuring, and planning. I then learned that he had made over 9,000 experiments in trying to devise this new type of storage battery, but had not produced a single thing that promised to solve the question. In view of this immense amount of thought and labor, my sympathy got the better of my judgment. And I said, isn't it a shame that with the tremendous amount of work you've done, you haven't been able to get any results? Edison turned on me like a flash, and with a smile he replied, results? Why, man, I have gotten a lot of results. I know several thousand things that won't work. (laughs) Let's sit for a minute. So we have some more time for walking now. And then please come and join us back for the closing of the evening and the chanting. And again, just a very short sitting to end the day together. And we have a new chant sheet that actually has the marks for the chanting. (laughs) 